Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. One of history's most famous female villains is Lady Macbeth from Shakespeare's play Macbeth. The play begins with her plotting the murder of King Duncan, the King of Scotland. And she knows that she wants to be queen and she can't kill Duncan herself because she's a woman. And in that culture, it's unbefitting of a woman to do something that violent, that treacherous. And there's actually a famous line in Macbeth where she wishes she was not a woman. She wishes she didn't have the tenderness and compassion of a woman, that she was a man so she could do it herself, plunge that dagger into King Duncan's heart. And so she manipulates her husband, Macbeth, and she tries to persuade him to kill Duncan. And when he lingers and when he hesitates, she questions his manhood. She's a cunning, manipulative woman who wants to kill, but she can't because she is a woman. Now, Macbeth eventually does murder Duncan. But she, Lady Macbeth, is so overcome with guilt that by the end of the play, she's relegated to a shell of herself and she's sleepwalking through the castle trying to get rid of this invisible stain of blood. And eventually, she commits suicide. So Lady Macbeth is a cruel, vindictive woman who wants to murder, wants to put the dagger in the chest, But because of the societal constraints of that time, because it's unbefitting of a woman to do something so violent, she channels her violence through her husband. Now, why do I bring up the violence of a woman and a dagger and the assassination of an enemy? Well, today we have another assassin, but it comes from the hand of a woman. Last week, I introduced to you the term, the nasties. Last week was a nasty. This week's another one. (laughs) I'm glad you came back because we're going through the Bible this morning. So those nasties are those parts of the Bible that are racy, they're gory, they're confusing. They don't set well with our modern sensibilities. They can be a little bit graphic. And so here's today's point. If we could distill this passage down to a sentence, the main idea, here's the main idea of our passage. God alone, God alone gets the glory in salvation even through the sinful actions of responsible humans. Now, at first glance, this may not make sense. How can God get glory through the sinful actions of human agents? How does this happen? 
How do these things work together? Well, it's a theological term called compatibilism. Compatibilism takes two truths from the Bible and puts them side by side and says these two things are compatible. So what are these two truths that the Bible teaches? Number one, the Bible teaches that God is absolutely and meticulously sovereign over all things. But yet at the same time, the Bible also teaches that humans are responsible and they act freely according to their nature. Those two things are compatible. Now, how it all works out, we don't often know. God is sovereign in how He operates. Humans are free in how they operate. And sometimes humans do very sinful things and they're accomplishing what God wants to be accomplished. And in the end, He alone gets the glory even through sinful actions of responsible humans. So I want us to explore how this plays out in Judges chapter 4. Really, Judges chapter 4 and 5 go together as a unit Chapter 4 explains what happens. Chapter 5 is a song that is sung recounting what happens. We'll look at that next week. We don't have time to do both of them this morning. But I want to see this passage unfold in four scenes, four sections. Here's the first. We see, again, I keep telling you we're going to see this over and over. We see the repeated cycle of sin in verses 1 through 3. The repeated cycle of sin. So let's read this together. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And the people of Israel again, there's that tragic word, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Again, Israel does what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. And like I've said before, when a judge is alive, the people are on their best behavior. But when the judge dies, they go back to their old ways. Ehud has died. Remember last week, Ehud's the one, that, the left-handed assassin? He's died. And so now they're going back to their evil ways. Matthew Henry has said this, The land had rest 80 years. This was back under Ehud. The land had rest 80 years, which should have strengthened them in their faith. But on the contrary, it made them comfortable and unrestrained, and they indulged the lust that they thought the false gods would gratify. You'd think God blessing them with 40 years of rest, it would lead them to repentance. It would lead them to be thankful. It would lead them to a change, a real transformation. But no, they go back to their sinful ways. Duane read this earlier during our time of confession from 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Israel's not doing that. They're not departing from iniquity. They're doing it again and again and again. And I want you to notice something. Their punishment keeps ramping up. Under Othniel, it was eight years. Under Ehud, it was 18 years. Notice here, how many years is it now? It's up to 20. And did you notice the detail? The word cruelly. 
cruelly oppressed them for 20 years, and Jabin has 900 iron chariots. 900 iron chariots. So this is an oppressive force. This is Canaan, the king of Canaan, Jabin, the Canaanites. So that's the first thing we see, this repeated cycle again and again. Let's look at the second scene or the second aspect. We see God's plan of salvation. Now this is the repeated cycle again. They get oppressed, they cry out, the Lord raises up a deliverer. So let's see that unfold in verses 4 through 11. So let's read that together. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went back with Barak Barak, to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Deborah, her name means bee. She's a prophetess. Now occasionally in the Bible you have a female prophetess. Miriam, who was the sister of Moses, She was a prophetess back in Exodus 15. Anna, in the New Testament book of Luke, she's a prophetess. She's married to a man named Lapidoth. His name means torch. So some people think that her name means fiery one or a fiery bee or a firefly. We really don't know. Here's what I think. Deborah is a shining bright light in a dark period in Israel. She positions herself in the middle of Israel, between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country. And it says she judged Israel. Now, here's the question. Is Deborah an official judge like Othniel in Ehud that came before her? Let's think about this for a moment. It never says that the Lord raised her up as a judge. It doesn't say the Lord raised up Deborah. It doesn't mention the Holy Spirit coming upon her like the other judges. The word save, a savior, is not attributed to her like the other judges. In chapter 5, next week, we'll find out she's not called a judge, but she's called the mother of Israel. And she's not mentioned in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, where Barak is mentioned. So here's the point. She's not an official judge. She's a mouthpiece of God. She's a messenger who's to announce deliverance, but she herself is not going to be the agent of deliverance. 
Now the people are coming to her. And they're coming to her with complaints. They're coming to her with their issues. But most of all, I think they're coming to her because they're under oppression. Now here's the interesting thing that you don't see in this passage of Scripture. And one thing I want you to look for, as we go through the book of Judges, I want you to look for it, and you won't see it. Are the people praying? Are the people repenting? Are the people confessing sin? Are they even asking God to bring deliverance? No, they're going to Deborah here, a female. And this brings up an issue. Why is a female the primary spiritual leader in Israel at this time? It's an indictment on the male leadership, especially the Levite priests. The official spiritual leaders of Israel are failing in their ministry. The priesthood has lost its influence. What were the the priests supposed to do? These male Levitical priests, what were they supposed to be doing in Israel? Well, Leviticus 10 verse 11 says, This is to the the Levites. You're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. They're supposed to be teaching the people. And then in 2 Chronicles 17, 9, And they, the priests, taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went through about all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. Now, they were responsible to going into all of Israel, going from town to town, village to village, and to teach and spiritually lead the people. One thing you're going to find also absent in the book of Judges is Levitical spiritual leadership by the priests. The people aren't praying. The people aren't seeking the Lord because the spiritual leaders aren't leading them to do it. They're abdicating their responsibility. They are AWOL. What happens when churches abandon this model of godly spiritual leadership. And let me make it more specific. What happens when male leaders don't step up to the plate and lead the way God has called us to lead? What happens? Well, when male leaders, pastors, don't lead, don't feed, don't teach the sheep, what happens to the sheep? The sheep either starve to death or they go somewhere else where they can be fed. The people starve when they're not following the leadership of godly pastors. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 2. The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, pastor, elder. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Titus 1.9, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to also rebuke those who contradict it. The reason Deborah is in a position of leadership is because the males aren't stepping up and being the leaders they're supposed to be. That's the problem in Israel. Now, she summons in verse 6 a man named Barak. His name means lightning. Lightning. And she says, gather the two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulon, and go up on Mount Tabor and assemble your troops, 10,000 of them. Now, Mount Tabor was strategic militarily. It was about 2,000 feet above sea level. It was an important crossing in the northern area of Israel. 
And in verse 8, God promises that he's going to give them the victory. Notice that God is speaking through Deborah the prophet. And what does she say in verse 7? I will, this is God, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariot and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. I'm going to give you victory, Barak. Now, in verse 8, some commentators, and I disagree with them, some commentators say that Barak is a sissy. He's a wimp. He won't go out to battle unless a woman holds his hand, is what they say. I don't think that's true. Now, he does say, Deborah, if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go. Here's what I think Barak's doing. I think that he has a childlike faith that says, she's the only person I know that represents God. And if she's not going out into battle with us, I'm not going to go because I need the presence of God in my life. So he sees in Deborah the presence, the mouthpiece of God, and he wants her to go into battle so that he has that security that God's with him. But I want you to also think about something. Before you say that Barak is a coward or that he's a sissy, think about this. Maybe he, growing up in Israel at this time, has never seen a godly male leader in his life. He's never had an example of what a man looks like. And so his default is, I'm going to follow this woman into battle because she's the only godly example I have in this culture. Remember, Deborah's a light. Her name means, or she's married to the man of light. And so she's going to lead, or God's going to lead them into battle. And in verse 9, you get a foreshadowing. What's her prophecy in verse 9? She gives a prophecy in verse 9. She said, and this is basically God and her saying, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, speaking to Barak, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Barak, you're going you're gonna to go into battle, but you're not going to get glory for killing Sisera. A woman's going to kill Sisera. Now, at this point in the narrative, Sis, uh, um, Barak's probably thinking that's going to be Deborah. Deborah's going to go into battle, and she's going to be the woman that kills Sisera. We really don't know. It's, it's kind of shaky, shadowy. It's just a woman's going to kill him. And then from that point forward, just to kind of tip my hand here, she's not mentioned. Deborah's not mentioned from that point forward in the narrative. Now, verse 11 pops out of nowhere, and you find out this man named Heber the Kenite. You're like, what's verse 11, Heber the Kenite? All of a sudden, what is this all about? Well, Heber the Kenite, he's a Kenite, which means he's from the same tribe as Othniel and Caleb, related to Moses. And it says he pitched his tent as far away from his clansmen as he could. Judah's in the south. If you were to get a map of Israel, Judah's in the south. He pitches his tent way up in the north. He wants to be a loner. He's a nomad. He wants to be away from his countrymen. And we'll find out later that he makes an alliance with Jabin, the king of Canaan. So he's kind of an evil man. He's not part of his tribe where he's supposed to be. He's making alliances with the Canaanites. We'll find out that later on. So verse 11 just kind of lets us know who Heber the Kenite is. This man that pitched his tent way far away. All right, so that's the plan. Number one, we've seen the repeated cycle of sin. Number two, we see God's plan of salvation. All right, third, let's see it all play out. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let's see how this plays out. Verses 12 through 16. 
When Sisera, was, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abaniam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera, I'm going to stop right there. Let's just stop right there. The battle belongs to the Lord. Okay, verse 12. Sisera was told that Barak was assembling an army. Who ratted him out? doesn't say, but maybe it was Heber the Kenite. Ratted him out. Verse 15 is the theological key to this entire passage of Scripture. Notice what verse 15 says. The Lord routed Sisera. The ESV says routed. Some translations may say throw into a panic. In other places in the Old Testament, it was used of a hailstorm or a large thunderstorm. You can go back to Joshua chapter 10, Psalm 144. It also reminds us of the Egyptian army. What happened with the Egyptian army and their chariots when they pursued Israel through the Red Sea? Exodus 14, 24 through 25. In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. We don't know exactly how the Lord routed them. Whether it was a hailstorm that caused them to turn back, whether there was so much rain that poured that their chariots got clogged in the mud, we really don't know. The thing we know is that the Lord did it. Did it. The Lord routed Sisera. The Lord is the source of the victory. The Lord is the one throwing them into confusion. And here's the reality, humanly speaking. Do you humanly think that Barak and his 10,000 men would hold up against 900 iron chariots? Humanly speaking, it, it doesn't make sense. So it had to be the battle belongs to the Lord. The victory had to come from the Lord. You've seen, you've seen those epic battle movies, haven't you? When those huge armies come in on horses and wipe out the guys that are on the ground with swords. I mean, there's no match. 900 iron chariots of horses, guys that are on foot. They would have been decimated. But the Lord does something miraculous. He routes them. He stymies them. He throws them into confusion. The battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord fought the battle. And who, who's left? Every single one of them is dead, except for the general, Sisera. Sisera is still alive, and he has to escape on foot. And so he runs up north where he knows Heber the Kenite is, because he knows Heber the Kenite has made an alliance, and he tries to escape. So let's so, so, so we've seen the battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord routes the enemy. But let's, the story's not over yet because Sisera is still alive. Let's look at the fourth aspect this morning. We see another sinister assassin. Another sinister assassin. Let's see it unfold. Verses 17 through 24. 
But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man come and ask you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you're seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So that's another nasty. Some of you are like, I heard you go, ooh. So God routed the entire army, 900 iron chariots. There's one man standing, the general, Sisera. And he has to flee on foot. And the narrative begins to slow down here with some graphic detail. And it's very similar to what we saw last week with Ehud. Ehud smooth talks the king to get him alone so he could assassinate him. Jael kind of smooth talks Sisera to get him in alone in the tent so she can kill him. So she hides him under a rug, probably to keep him warm, but maybe to muffle the sound, we really don't know. So think about Sisera. He's running, he's running, he's exhausted. He's tired. He's laying there. He's like, just give me something to drink. I want some water. And what does she give him? Does she give him water? No, she gives him milk. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but did it have a sleep aid in it? To make him go to sleep faster? We really don't know. She gives him milk. She lays him on this, under the sheep or goat skin rug. And then he makes her lie for him. Did you notice what, what, what he says? He, he says, all right, I want you to lie for me. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. If a man or any man comes to the tent and is looking for somebody, say nobody's here. Now, if you're a woman, that sounds kind of insulting, doesn't it? If all these guys start showing up at your tent, tell them I'm not here. Well, why would a bunch of guys start showing up at her tent? What do we know about this lady? Do men just automatically show up at her tent all the time? Is she an adulteress? That would be a little bit insulting. He's kind of questioning her morality, inflating himself. If all these men come looking for you, tell them nobody's here. And she's like, okay, I'll say nobody's here. That's a play on words. Who was Sisera? Well, he was the general of the entire army, but now he's been diminished to nobody. So she was actually telling the truth. Nobody's here. He's been reduced to a nobody. Now, verse 21, you see it in slow motion. What happens? Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove. The word drove there is the exact same word used when Ehud stabbed 
King Eglon that we saw last week. If you go back up to verse chapter 3, verse 21, it's the same Hebrew word. Now, this is very interesting. And the Bible doesn't tell us this, but you have to ask some questions. Sometimes these stories make you ask questions. How did she have the nerve to do this? She knew he was exhausted, but what if he ro- woke up right at the last moment? What if her hands were shaky and she missed? What if he had one of his soldiers right outside come in at the last moment? It took a lot of bravery for her to do this. Now, all we know is the text tells us that he was lying asleep because he was extremely weary. He was exhausted. He was in a deep sleep. So he's dead. But who's still in the picture? Who's been chasing him all this time? Barak. Barak's been running after him. And then here's where the Hebrew helps you. What's Barak's name? Lightning. Do you think he's running like lightning? Is he like the flash? Is he getting there? We don't know. All we know is there's there's an interesting Hebrew word here. Verse 22. Behold! Behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera. Behold! Remember what Deborah said? You're not going to get the glory. He's running, he's running, he's running. Behold, like lightning, jail kills Sisera. And just at that moment, when she struck him like lightning, lightning himself comes in, and behold, he's already dead. One woman, one tent peg, dead. He remembers. Ah. Back in verse 9, what Deborah said, you're not going to get the glory. She's going to be healed by the hand of a woman. Daniel Block says this. I like what he says. Barak is not only running after Sisera, he's running after glory. The final scene burst his egotistical balloon. He's running after glory, and he doesn't get the glory. A woman does. Now, how would Barak view jail? The Bible, again, doesn't tell us this, but think about his attitude. If you're a man, she stole my glory. She did what I was supposed to do. How shameful that a woman killed a man that I was supposed to kill. Now, how are we supposed to view jail? It's another nasty like last week. How are we supposed to handle these assassins that go in and kill people in very graphic ways? Well, as we'll see next week, she celebrated and called blessed for what she did. Now, there's no hint that she assassinated Sisera for any spiritual reasons. doesn't say she was doing it for Israel. We really don't know. She freely committed murder. And what she did was treacherous. But in the end, what did she do? She killed the enemy. And it was prophesied that she would do it, and it was part of God's sovereign plan whether she knew she was a part of it or not. Did she know at that moment when she drove that tent peg into the temple of Sisera that she was fulfilling God's sovereign plan, God's predestined plan? How can she act sinfully to do what she wanted to do and yet at the same time fulfill God's sovereign plan? That's what I said at the very beginning. It's called compatibilism. She acted sinfully to do what she wanted to do, and it was all part of God's sovereign plan. Now, let's step back and ask a question. 
Who's the hero in this account? Is it Deborah? Is it Barack? Is it JL? Who alone gets the glory in this story as the ultimate hero? Look at verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. God subdued. So if you take verse 23 and you take verse 15. Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera. Verse 23, God subdued Jabin. You take those two words together, God alone gets the glory. And it's interesting that word subdued. That word subdued in the Hebrew language sounds like this. I'll give you the Hebrew. Kana. It means to humiliate. I'll say it the way it would sound in Hebrew. Kind of English, English version. The Lord Kanad, the king of Canaan. Canaan sounds just like Canaan. It's from the same thing. You put it this way. The Lord humiliated the king of Canaan. The Lord Kanad, or you can put it this way. The Lord Canaan, the king of Canaan. He humiliated him. Subdued him. So who alone gets the glory? God. God alone routes the enemies. God alone routes our enemies. Who are our enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. God alone subdues and humiliates our enemy, Satan. And God alone is sovereign in our salvation and gets all the glory. Yet in the process, sinful humans do sinful things, and God accomplishes His purposes and gets the glory. Now, we may be bothered by this, as we were last week by the left-handed assassin. It, It goes against... Conventional wisdom. It's not a night nice. It's not a night nice and neat uh, narrative with a tidy ending. It's it's graphic and it, it's a woman of all things doing something very violent and putting a tent spike through a guy's head and pegging him to the ground. But I want to remind you of something. Doesn't that just sound like how God does things for His own glory? Listen to what Paul says in First Corinthians one eighteen through twenty five. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness, literally in Greek, moronic, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Sometimes when God does His work, it's unconventional. It doesn't make sense. It's messy and it's nasty. Think about all the human sinful actions in this narrative account. How did it start? Israel, again, did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jabin was an evil king of Canaan. Sisera was an evil general. Heber the Kenite was a wicked man who made an alliance with Israel's enemy. 
But whether we like it or not, jail violently assassinated a man. Yet in all of this, who gets the glory? God, because he saved his enemies. Let me ask you a question. What was the greatest act of evil the world has ever known? The cross. The crucifixion by the hands of sinful men. In the cross of Christ, wicked men did the most wicked of actions, but do you know that it was part of God's predestined plan? Peter tells us in Acts 2, 22-23, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified him. You're responsible. You acted evilly, but it was God's predetermined plan. You're doing what you freely wanted to do, but in the freeness of your sin, you're doing exactly what God wanted to happen, the crucifixion of His Son. Acts 4, 27-28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There's four people that Peter lists here that are responsible. There's Herod, there's Pilate, there's the Roman soldiers, and there's the Jewish leaders. And they're all acting freely, sinfully, to do what they want to do, but they're doing God's predestined plan to crucify Jesus. And in the end, who alone gets the glory? God alone gets the glory. How God gets the glory is sometimes messy. And sometimes from our perspective, it may look ugly, It may have unconventional methods, but God doesn't have to do things the way we want Him to do. He can do it however He wants to. Because may I remind you of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us are belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. Let's let God worry about the messy things that He alone is in charge of, And let us be thankful for something in our salvation. Remember how the Lord routed the enemies? The Lord subdued the enemies, probably causing them to get stuck in in the mud. The chariot stuck in the mud, in the mire, to destroy the Canaanite army. I want you to think about something. God has every right to destroy you and me and keep us stuck in the mud of our sin because we're just as sinful as the Canaanites. You don't get a free pass. We're all rebel sinners, and we were once enemies of a holy God, and we deserve nothing but justice and hell. We don't deserve to be saved. As a matter of fact, we deserve to be routed and subdued and humiliated. But listen to the hope of Psalm 40. This is how we began our worship service. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. God alone saved you from the muck 
and mire of your sin. God alone has routed your enemies. God alone has set you on the rock of Jesus Christ, His Son. And God alone has put a new song in your mouth. And God alone has done all of this for His glory. For His glory alone. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Praise be to Jesus that He saved us by grace. He pulled us out of the muck and mire, set our feet upon a rock, put a new song in our mouth, and we can trust in this great God because He's done it all for us, but ultimately for His glory alone. So let's bow our heads and go before this great God who does all things for His glory alone and would dare save us as sinners who deserve nothing but His wrath. We read these stories and we scratch our heads. They seem foreign to us. They seem kind of violent to us. Strange names, strange places. Armies fighting, chariots. But Lord, if there's one thing we can remember from today is that you alone have defeated all of our enemies. You alone receive all the glory. You alone are all-powerful and worthy of all praise. And just like the Canaanites who were destroyed, we were under your wrath at one time and had every right to be destroyed as well. But because of your grace and your mercy and your love, instead of routing us or subduing us or getting us stuck in the mud, you've pulled us out of the mud of our sin. You put us on the solid rock of Jesus and you put a new song in our mouths. And for that, Lord Jesus, we say thank you. We praise you. Because, Lord, we know that every day we face the world, the flesh, and the devil. We face temptation. We face the the spiritual enemies all around us. And thank you, Jesus, that you routed those enemies. You subdued those enemies on the cross once and for all. And you rose again victoriously from the grave. And you're alive today as King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling and reigning and subduing all of our enemies. And we can live every day confidently knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord. Lord, help us to live in that victory. Help us to live in that reality. Help us not be like Israel that keeps going back and back to sin over and over again. Let us look to you as the only one to receive glory. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. May you alone receive the glory in our lives this week as we live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.